Hello and welcome. This is Camille Brooks. I love to help people discover how they can find more joy and peace in their personal lives, marriage, and family, and help them discover that their sorrows can bring out the glory within them. Today's podcast is from the series Joy in Heroes. Stories of heroes that inspire us to persevere and do hard things. Welcome to our podcast. No one signs up to be a hero. Not long ago, during World War II, the people of Japanese ancestry were the victims of racism in the United States. Though they were Americans and lived in the land of the free, they were suddenly deemed the enemy were rapidly rounded up and detained for three years behind barbed wire in remote relocation camps. This was true for our guest, Roger Corday's family. When I asked Roger who his hero was, he said his family. He considered his mother, father, and grandparents to all be heroes. The hardships they experienced and the choices they made because of racism have inspired Roger to persevere and do hard things. Stay with us. I believe you'll be inspired. Roger Coide was born in Berkeley, California. He graduated from El Cerrito High School in 1976. He then completed a BA degree in biology from Poma College in 1980. He received a PhD in botany from the University of California, Berkeley in 1984 and did postdoctoral research at Stanford University from 1984 to 1986. He was a professor at Penn State University from 1986 to 2012. He then moved to Utah with his family to join the faculty at BYU as professor of biology. He and his wife, Claudia, were married in 1979. They are the parents of three children and the grandparents of six children. Roger, welcome. We are so glad you're willing to be with us today and share your story. Thanks, Camille. It's great to be here. Racism has really raised up its ugly head in surprising and violent ways in the recent months. How have you felt about all this? Have these current circumstances roused tender and painful memories for you? Yeah, recent events have uh, caused me and members of my family to think about our past and even our present situation. You know, this uh, COVID pandemic in particular has been a stimulus for, for reflection for me and for my family. It seems like this thing will never go away. <laughs> it does. Yeah. It's affecting everybody, all nations, all races, religions. And in that respect, the COVID uh, pandemic is no respecter of persons. But despite the danger that we all face from the disease, the continued abuses of minorities, especially blacks, and the indifference of some government leaders to this problem makes it quite clear that many have not received the message that we are all in this together. Most Americans have been, uh, you know, as Americans, we're used to certain freedoms, and the pandemic has certainly restricted some of those freedoms. But I was born in 1957, just 12 years after the end of uh, World War II. So for me, it's it wasn't so long ago that people of Japanese ancestry lost most of their freedoms, when they were rounded up from the Western states and detained for about three years behind barbed wire 
in these remote relocation camps. As a 14-year-old, my dad and his family were interned in a camp called Topaz, not far from Delta, Utah. Have you been down there? That's in southern Utah. I haven't. I would love to go see that. Yeah, there's a great museum there. People ought to, people ought to take advantage of that. Anyway, at the time, the Topaz camp was the fifth largest city in Utah. My mother was 10 when she and her family interned in a camp in Jerome, Arkansas. So they were as children with their parents in these two different camps. I guess nobody decides to be a hero, and my folks certainly didn't want to be heroes. Nobody signed up to leave their homes in California to live in these uh, terrible barracks, uninsulated tar paper barracks. They didn't ask to live behind barbed wire for an unspecified period of time. They didn't know how long it was going to last, of course. But those events of World War II happened to them, despite their best wishes, just as life happens to to each of us. Very few people, you know, ask for trials simply, simply to be refined by them. My parents and my grandparents were not among those asking for trials, I'm sure. But sometimes things just happen, and, and life becomes very challenging. The challenges faced by my parents and my grandparents and the way they handled those trials have had a pretty big impact on who I am today. Some of your listeners may not be aware that during World War II, about 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry, many of whom were U.S. citizens, not all of them were U.S. citizens. I'll tell you about that in a second. But 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry were held behind barbed wire for about three years during World War II. My grandparents immigrated to this country legally and they wanted to be citizens, but the laws at the time did not provide a way for Asians to become citizens. So Japanese people, Chinese people could not become citizens in this country, even if they legally migrated here and wanted to become citizens. Yeah, yeah. So this country has always had problems this way. It's nothing new. So when we see this kind of thing today, you know, it's like the same old thing coming around again. My parents, of course, were citizens because they were born in this country. During the internment during World War II, my people were, you know, deprived of their homes, their businesses, their church, all their possessions, whatever they couldn't take to the camp, their friends. All of this happened even though they had never been accused of a crime, never were convicted of a crime. They were simply of Japanese ancestry, unfortunately, during a war against Japan. There was no military necessity for the internment. My parents and their families were simply victims of prejudices of uh, government officials, and there was nothing they could do about it. The U.S. Constitution, you know, is is a marvelous document. Many people think it was an inspired document, but government is not performed by a document. It's performed by people, imperfect people, and sometimes even corrupt people. And we are often the victims of their decisions. Yes, that's right. And that's why we have to be very careful who we vote for, for example. Official recognition of the injustices of the internment uh, was given by the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. So it wasn't until many, many decades later when President Reagan signed that Civil Liberties Act. And it acknowledged the injustice of the whole situation. It apologized on behalf of the people of the United States. And it provided some funding for education. So a number of, for example, professorships were endowed at universities throughout the country to help educate people about that. 
I love what you said about um, no one signs up to be a hero. It's the choices that people make that make them a hero. And tell us about your parents and your grandparents and the choices that they made that now make you consider them to be great heroes. Yeah. You know, my parents, as I said, were in their respective internment camps as, as young people for about three years during what is, for most of us, the most socially formative period of our lives, you know, those early teenage years. Now, I should say that the internment camps for my people were nothing like the concentration camps for Jews or other enemies of the Third Reich. This was not like that at all. So we never refer to them as concentration camps. There was no systematic extermination, no slave labor, no medical experimentation of anything like that. My parents had three meals a day. They had schools to attend in the camp. There were birthday parties to be celebrated. There were baseball games to play. So uh, we don't we don't call them concentration camps. But life wasn't normal in those camps. My parents, as I said, were in there for three years. And of course, they didn't know it was going to be three years. As far as they were concerned, this was the new normal. They were going to be there forever. They thought perhaps they were going to be there the rest of their lives. I think that uncertainty was probably one of the hardest things for them to bear. If they knew this was just going to be for so many months or so many years, you know, you can hope and dream beyond that. But because there was uncertainty and you didn't know how long you were going to be there, perhaps forever, it was impossible to plan for a future and difficult to dream about uh, your future. You had no control over it. So that, I think that was one of the most difficult things. Before the war started, my father's parents owned a home in a grocery store in Berkeley, California. During the internment, the store, of course, had to be shuttered, and there was no income from the store during those three years. Luckily, they were able to return to their home after the war, but others weren't, weren't so fortunate. Many Japanese people lost homes and businesses to unscrupulous people who, who gained possession of their homes and their businesses during their absence. That's so sad. Yeah, it was difficult. Returning, uh, I'll, I'll mention this later, but returning to their homes after the camp experience was no easier than it was to go into the camp in the first place. Anyway, in addition to those obvious difficulties of losing all their stuff during the war, there were some pretty insidious things that were experienced by the families in these camps. You probably are aware that in Asian cultures in general, people revere the elderly for their experience, and the cultures are generally patriarchal. Families are structured around these two things, the father and the elderly. But in the camps, this traditional family structure was really weakened in two important ways. It's not clear whether they were purposeful or just accidental, but anyway, the family was weakened in two major ways. First, in the camps, the internees ate together in large mess halls at every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So frequently, children ate with their friends instead of with their families. Now, that may not seem like much, but you know as well as I do that parents have relatively few opportunities to influence their children. And one of those important times is at, at meals. So if the kids aren't eating with their parents, but with each other instead, the influence of the parents on the children is really severely limited. I can imagine. And also not being in a home, not having that one-on-one -on -one time. I just can't even imagine yeah. trying to raise yeah, a family in a camp. I think Satan is always trying to do things to weaken the family. He's weakening the family through COVID, but many people like your grandparents are making good choices. And even though it's hard and it's like they're in bondage, they are choosing to spend more time as a family and to make the best of it. See dads out in the 
driveway playing with their kids and going on bikes, <laughs> walks and bike rides and yeah, hikes. And But it's a choice. It's a choice to take this time of COVID that is kind of like a bondage and an imprisonment. It yeah. seems like for many families, they're stuck at home with nothing to yeah. do. But some are making good choices to try to bring the family closer together. To yeah, do. that's true. The second thing that happened... Uh, in those camps was that the when the internees organized themselves, one of the most influential groups to emerge was the Japanese American Citizens League, the JACL. And they're still around. The JACL is still a vibrant organization today. But it consisted mainly of Nisei, or second-generation people, born in the United States, my parents' generation. They were citizens. So the Japanese American Citizens League. Because it was an organization primarily of citizens, it excluded my grandparents' generation, the Issei, who could not become citizens. So the problem was the camp officials recognized the JACL as the voice of the camp internees, which left the Issei, my grandparents' generation, who were in the prime of their lives, kind of out of the equation. So whether by design or by convenience, the traditional structure of the family was being dismantled. Well, somehow my father's family stayed intact. I think that was largely due to my father's mother, my grandmother, who was a very strong-willed woman. <laughs> you know, that has its pluses and minuses, but certainly in this situation, there were a lot of pluses. And they had, I think, an unusual marriage. Unlike many marriages among Japanese, her marriage to my grandfather was not arranged. Back then, I would say probably a, a majority of the marriages were arranged marriages. I think they actually fell in love with each other in Japan and married for that reason. That was kind of unusual back then, but it was a tremendous bond for them, of course. And my grandmother had tremendous respect for my grandfather. And I'm sure she instilled that respect in her children, including my father. And there's something else I should mention. Unlike many other Japanese people, my grandmother, again, my father's mother, was Christian. And that was very unusual. She had converted to Christianity in Japan. Moreover, my mother's father, so on the other side of the family, had also converted to Christianity in Japan. So both my father and my mother were raised in the United States to believe in Jesus Christ. And I think that instilled in them the importance of doing right despite things around them going very wrong. That's beautiful. I'm glad you shared that. I think that is so important. Our faith in Jesus Christ helps us find peace and joy and strength and direction during difficult times. And it's evident that your grandmother and grandfather were strengthened by their faith and that helped them keep their family close together, even though they were separated in some ways in the camp. Sure. I think so. Well, I was saying that uh, camp life was really, really difficult. Um, but as hard as camp life was, I think it was even harder in 1945 when the war ended and the internees were allowed to return home. For many, as I said earlier, they, they no longer had homes or businesses. But even if you did have a home to return to, try to imagine returning to a society that had thought so poorly of you that they felt it necessary to push in camps behind barbed wire for three years. Try to imagine returning to a society of people who had fought in the Pacific War against people who looked just like you. Try to imagine doing that as a teenager, knowing that all a teenager wants to do is fit in. So my parents 
you know, they were that age, that tender age. All they wanted to be was like everybody else, but it was uh, not possible for them to be like that. Going back to school, for example, for my parents meant putting on more armor to protect their already fragile egos. I think it's an understatement to say that this had a tremendous impact on my parents. For example, when my mother's family returned to California, they were very, very poor with no source of income. My uncle Joe, my mother's older brother, who was only 16 at the time, built the one-room home in which they lived temporarily. While he was up on the roof nailing the shingles, some locals drove by and shot at him with a rifle. Oh, my. Yeah, try to imagine how that must have felt as, as a teenage boy. So leaving camp, um, you would think would have been a relief, but it wasn't a relief. It was just an entry into another very difficult and frustrating situation that, again, you, you couldn't control. Wow, that must have been so hard. How have these experiences impacted your life personally? Yeah, they, they have had a big impact on my life. As I said uh, at the beginning, I was born in 1957 only a dozen years after the war ended, there was a tremendous underlying insecurity in my family. And that insecurity resulted in a number of behaviors that might seem strange to most people today. The doctor who delivered me was Japanese American. My dentists and orthodontists were Japanese American. We did business with Sumitomo Bank, the Japanese bank. Our realtor was Japanese-American. Our TV repairman was Japanese-American. Even the man from whom we purchased Christmas cards was Japanese-American. There was safety and security in dealing with others who possessed common experiences. I, I can imagine there must have just been a great distrust for other Americans. Yeah. The first home my parents purchased was in Berkeley, California. We think of Berkeley as a very progressive community, and it is today. But in the 1950s, it really wasn't. We lived in a particular neighborhood because we were not allowed to purchase a home in other neighborhoods. <laughs> um, it was not a law, but no realtor would show, if you were Asian or Black, would show you a home outside of Asian or Black neighborhoods. You just couldn't move into a white neighborhood. So our neighbors, like us, were racial minorities. They were either Asian or Black, mostly. And my parents also experienced racial prejudice in their workplaces. They learned to ignore it as a survival mechanism. We never discussed it at home. But, you know, these these hurts never went away. So integration into this society that clearly did not want you for many was impossible for the rest of us it was it was pretty difficult so having experienced that roger what would your counsel be to our listeners if they face racism or prejudice judgments of others what would you say to them yeah that's it that's a difficult one camille you know it helps to have an eternal perspective i think this life, you and I know, is, is a temporary place, and all things will be made right later. There, there will just be things we have to deal with in this life because people are imperfect. Not everybody got the email that we're all the same, you know, but uh, we can deal with that. Sometimes it's so difficult, especially if you have to explain these things to your children. And I can imagine black parents having to talk to their children about the sort of injustices that they can expect to experience in their lives. It's difficult to teach your children, well, turn the other cheek and 
and just take it for the rest of your lives. But, you know, essentially that's what, that's essentially what we had to do. And uh, just to keep a in, eternal perspective, I guess, is the best way to do it. I would say that's great counsel. Oh, thanks. My parents, to try to combat these things, taught us to or they encouraged us, or they even expected us really to excel in whatever we wanted to do. We were in those regards, uh, very stereotypical Asian American family, you know, super high achievers or tried to be. My parents, they sacrificed a lot of time and money to provide things for us like violin lessons or piano lessons or flute or voice or even flying lessons. My brother became a pilot and he, and before he even got his driver's license, was uh, taking flying lessons. My mother used to take me to lectures at UC Berkeley. We lived near Berkeley, so it was easy for us to get there. And she would uh, look who was giving a lecture. And if it was something I was interested in, she would take me down there. As I said, my brother became an airline pilot. I became a professor. One sister enjoyed a successful career in business consulting. Another is is a singer. She lives down in Los Angeles area and has been a professional singer her entire life. More than that, I think we each came to understand that life is tough. We can can still survive and we can even we can even do well. We can even thrive despite these tough things. Occasionally, of course, all hell breaks loose. You know, in 2014, for example, my wife was diagnosed with a very rare and deadly cancer. She's still alive, thank goodness. Uh, but we didn't know what the outcome of that was going to be. Life is just like that frequently uncertain. But I think I have been taught through my parents' example, my grandparents, indirectly, that you can survive even very difficult uh, circumstances. And because of my Christian roots, three generations of Christian roots there, these difficulties have caused me to become more humble, more grateful, more gentle, more kind trying to be more Christ-like. Of course, I'm not very good at any of that, but uh, the difficulties in life, the large and small difficulties in life have had that kind of tempering impact on me. I've been humbled enough that I can maybe try to be humble on my own. I think I owe that to my parents and my grandparents. That's a great legacy to leave your children. Your grandparents would be so proud of you. That's what trials are for, is to help us become more like the Savior And that's what they've done for you, is help you become more like him and develop Christ-like attributes in your life. I love how you said, I think we each come to understand that while life can be very challenging, we can all survive and even thrive despite those challenges. So many in this life become bitter instead of better because of what they're going through. And there are lots of challenges right now, not just with COVID, but politically and with racism in the world, they're bringing challenges to us and into our homes. But we all have our agency and we can choose what we're going to do with it, like your grandparents did, like you have done. We can choose to become better because of it and not bitter and angry. I think it's important that we remember the teachings of God. He is no respecter of persons because we are all his children. And so when we meet someone, we should see them as a child of God, not see them as a color, not see them as an ethnicity, not someone who is different from us, 
but to see them as our brother and our sister. And when we do that, there is no such thing as racism and prejudice and judgment. And then also to remember the first and second great commandment that when we love the Lord with all our heart, we're commanded to love one another as well with all our heart. And these things will help us prevent racism and prejudice and work with the problems that we have in the world. Thank you for being with us today, Roger. We're so glad that you shared your story. It was a beautiful story. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. In closing, I'd like to read Russell M. Nelson, a prominent Christian religious leader, reminded us, let us be clear. We are brothers and sisters. Each of us is the child of a loving father in heaven. His son, the Lord Jesus Christ, invites all to come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. It behooves each of us to do whatever we can in our sphere of influence to preserve the dignity and respect every son and daughter of God deserves. I hope you will join us next time. For more inspiration, join me at FindingJoyInPeace.com. Until then, thank you for listening. May God bless you as you strive to create more joy and peace in your homes and in the world around you.